You know, it's funny you say that because I think what people don't realize, especially a lot of the marketeers in security, like they want to pick up the fanciest buzzwords and, you know, EDR and AI and this and that. It's the basics that gets people. At the end of the day, if you look at where a lot of the research has shown, it's the basics that you got to focus on first and get right. But right around the time when we were building Redlock, you started hearing every week about an S3 bucket being misconfigured, data being exposed. And, you know, we said, look, the only way to really educate the market is quantify the risk. And so we had a research team, we called it the CSI team, it was a cloud security intelligence team. And we produced some incredible research. You know, we found uh, exposed cloud environments for Tesla. We found lots of large enterprises where our researchers would, you know, privately disclose issues to them. You know, we were not trying to make money in a business out of just going public and Kind of creating a wall of shame for companies so we did a lot of stuff in private and that gained a lot of trust and credibility the genealogy of cybersecurity is a new kind of podcast here we'll interview notable entrepreneurs startup advising CISOs, venture capitalists and more our topic the problems of cybersecurity new attack surfaces and innovation across the startup world welcome i'm your cybersecurity analyst paul shomo So I am Varun Badwar, founder and CEO of Endora Labs. Um, prior to this, I built two other companies, CypherCloud and Redlock, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about uh, that background. Okay. And you're also, and I think this is the record, you brought three startups into Innovation Sandbox as finalists, correct? Yes. I've been fortunate to bring all three uh, startups to the RSA Innovation Sandbox. And although I uh, haven't won a single time, but I guess... Uh, it's the it's the thought that counts. I always say um, all the finalists are winners because you never know which one's going to end up being uh, Palo Alto Prisma Cloud. So there you go. Yeah. So, yeah. We, and we already recorded an episode about Indoor Labs. It's going to come out in probably three weeks, a month, something like that. But I wanted to you to come back and, or actually it'll come out before this episode. I, I forget that we're going to be in the future. Um, but I want you to come back on and talk about this influential startup you did uh, called Redlock, which of course is now the Palo Alto Prisma Cloud. And over the years, as I've mentioned to you, um, so many founders and leaders in the startup world came out of Redlock that I bumped into, which always kind of gave me this fascination with Redlock. Um, you want to start out by giving an overview of what Redlock is for those who are unfamiliar? Yeah, Redlock was founded in 2015 with a premise that nobody wanted to build data centers anymore. But as you started moving into the cloud and your developers were going off, with credit cards back in the day, uh, the, kind of deploying services in the cloud, you as an enterprise had very little idea of what was going on within those cloud environments, what kind of services and applications were being deployed, how they were being configured, what kind of data was in there, who was managing and administering that. And so the whole idea of Redlock, I mean, you know, today it's a well understood market and problem of cloud security posture management. Back then the idea was really, how do we give you visibility and comfort and the guardrail such that you can confidently let your developers use cloud infrastructure platforms like AWS, Azure, and Google without the concern that would slow them down from kind of driving the innovation that they wanted to. Yeah, so you basically built cloud security posture management, which obviously is broad now and splintered off into a number of categories, but you basically built that a few years in front of the the broader uh, cloud transformation. And, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of companies um, out there, they have to, they're copying competitors, their Gartner analyst is telling them what to do, but clearly you were, you were way out in front. Like, what was your formula to be the first through the wall and build it right and align with the customer needs? 
Yeah, Paul, I, I don't I don't think there's a specific formula, but I'll share a few things that have worked out for me in kind of building three companies over the last 13 years is first and foremost, listen to your customers. I, you know, contrary to popular belief that when you're building a startup, just kind of go into a cave, don't tell anybody anything you do, have them sign heavy-handed NDAs to like share your ideas. We were kind of the opinion that we need to have hundreds of conversations and we need to tell more and more people what to do. And I never bothered asking people to sign NDAs to then hear what I'm working on with the company because, you know, my mantra there is if somebody can hear your idea in 30 minutes and then copy it and build a company around it, well, hallelujah, like kudos to them. They out executed you. And so I think a lot of this was conversations, conversations, conversations. And initially in 2015, we were already starting to think about containers and the original genesis of Redlock was how do you secure these distributed cloud environments where, where you're interacting with APIs and containers and people had us kind of back out. They said, you're going too far. Our basic problem today is just understanding what our developers are doing in the cloud and are the basic policies and configurations appropriately set up. You know, you have to remember in an enterprise, the IT environment that we were accustomed to back then, people, there was a different team putting in firewall rules, different team standing up servers, a different team managing the vulnerabilities. In cloud, it kind of all consolidates, right? The same developer is setting firewall rules through security groups, is setting up the databases, is setting up the connectivity to a virtual VM. Um, and so, you know, one mistake, and you're not exposing your crown jewels to the internet. And so we heard this feedback saying, I'm not comfortable, or I'm not sure how I'm gonna meet my compliance objectives as my team start moving into the cloud. And so we kind of backtracked to say, gotta start with visibility, right? You can't secure what you can't see. And, and really that's where the genesis of this came from is purely talking to lots of people. So back back then to, to start on a preventative visibility was so different because I, I mean, I was interviewing founders and evaluating the products coming through Innovation Sandbox. So like I began my cloud transition or my thinking in that two, 2017 to 2019 period with you obviously at the beginning and then a few other products in that general space. But at that time, like the cool kids on the RSA Expo floor, they were all talking about EDR and how machine learning created next-gen antivirus and IoT. And I guess when you know, that all revolved around malware, like the unit of focus of their attention was files and running processes to catch malware, right? And so I remember in that period to, you know, 2017 to 19, I would see products like yours. And it was a real shock because where was the files and processes and malware? There's nothing about that. It's it's all identity configurations, access levels, vulnerability, stuff like that. And what, what was that like? I mean, because I had a heck of a time trying to get that through editors yeah. to explain, but what was that like to have to like, turn the world upside down, educate people just so you could market and generate leads. You know, it's funny you say that because I think what people don't realize, especially a lot of the marketeers and security, like they want to pick up the fanciest buzzwords and, you know, EDR and AI and this and that. It's the basics that gets people. At the end of the day, if you look at where a lot of the research has shown, it's the basics that you got to focus on first and get right. And, you know, the way we actually helped uh, and, you know, part of it was our researchers, but part of it was also what was happening. But right around the time when we were building Redlock, you started hearing every week about an S3 bucket being misconfigured, data being exposed. And, you know, we said, look, the only way to really educate the market is quantify the risk. And so we had a research team, we called it the CSI team, it was a cloud security intelligence team. And we produced some incredible research. You know, we found uh, exposed cloud environments for Tesla. We 
found lots of large enterprises where our researchers would, you know, privately disclose issues to them. You know, we were not trying to make money in a business out of just going public and kind of creating a wall of shame for companies. So we did a lot of stuff in private and that gained a lot of trust and credibility to say, A, this team knows what they're doing in the cloud and B, they're actually here to help. Um, and, and I'd say, Paul, that's how we did it, right? Like just getting to the basics, showing people examples of how things are going wrong in the cloud every single day and how easy, like you don't have to be an advanced attacker to get this. You're a script kid in high school who can find open misconfigured environments in the cloud. It sounds like uh, customer references and getting those initial logos was a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. A, lo a lot of our business came through word of mouth. A lot of it came through partners you know, who were having lunches and dinners with their trusted uh, customers in the network and saying, you know, we're hearing a lot about this company, these other, other vendors are showing up. But frankly, I'd say the biggest impact for us was how easy it was to demonstrate value to customers. So, you know, typically we, it was all connected through an API key into your AWS environment. We would go into a meeting and say, you know, look, and instead of talking about this, why don't we just show you the situation in your, your cloud environment? And we had sales conversations lead to war rooms within the customer environment because the stuff we highlighted was just bad news. And, you know, in other cases, it was almost like, oh, my God, you shines the light on stuff. I don't want you to turn this thing off now. Um, yeah. And so I think that was the biggest thing is our focus on quick time to value and demonstrating to people in their environment kind of what the current state of uh, state of the art security they had. It's interesting you mentioned that because I've heard that story from some successful startups. And, and another entrepreneur once told me that, in, in their opinion, to get a Fortune 500 company to buy immature software, you better have an unsolved problem that they have to handle that you show them, like, you have this and I can handle it for you. Do, do you do you feel that that's like a bar you kind of have to reach or, or is there any anything you agree with that about? I'll say there's two things, right? Most security teams are overwhelmed, even with the number of tools that they want to try out. Um, there's a whole backlog, usually a six to 12 month backlog. So the first question is, how do you get to the front of the line? Well, you can make it dead simple where somebody can set it up in 10 minutes and you know not have to bring in somebody on the proxy team and somebody for the endpoints. Uh, so kind of how do you get them, the teams who want to test you or your champions in the enterprise, how do you get them the, uh, to win the political battles to deploy your product? And the second thing is once you deploy, how do you make them look good that they brought something into the organization that was high value? Um, so that was kind of our focus in, um, in, in the kind of sales process. Yeah. And as far as direction of product and technology, you talked about um, listening to customers. Did, could you describe your level of collaboration with in the venture capital world where the analysts or were part of their CISO advisory boards, part of guiding the product, or was it really more focused on the customers that actually were paying for software? No, it was customers paying for software, it was prospects. It was people we would talk to, meet at conferences, hear from them. They may not buy our software today, or they may never buy our software, but their insights are still valuable. So I would say that's where we focused, I mean, the most um, was that. The other piece that we focused on is a lot of the security consulting companies that were being brought in to help customers, because customers were like, I don't know what's going on with the cloud, help me. And so we would try to understand what are the practices they're building, what are the kind of tooling they're using to perform their assessments? You know, where are customers most concerned? Where do they want to go? And then how can we build technologies to accelerate that journey? I want to I want to dig into the culture of Redlock a little bit. So a lot of CEOs put plaques on the wall and they promote this list of like corporate values, which employees would kind of look at and think, mm -hmm. okay, wishful thinking. But there was clearly something to Redlock. Um, 
what what would you say is like the raw unfiltered description what was the culture at redlock yeah it's a great question look first and foremost uh, and i know you you know, the whole conversation started with how come there's so many leaders in the industry and CEOs that have emerged from Redlock. Okay. I think, you know, our hiring process really focused uh, on two things. It was one is certainly we want to know what have you done in the past and like how good were you at what you did. But we were looking for people with the personality trait of being very hungry to have the opportunity to prove themselves in the next role. Uh, and you know, a lot of situations, maybe they weren't before a VP of worldwide sales or a CMO of a company or a head of solutions engineering before, maybe they had done it in a smaller capacity, but they'd done it very well. And we gave them the stage to go prove, prove that they can do it at that next level at a global scale. And so I think people were appreciative to have that opportunity and also were really wanting to prove themselves to be successful. So I think versus, you know, I've done this role 10 times over, I'm coming for the 11th time, I can do it in my sleep. Um, not to say there's anything wrong with that, but you know, we just had a different focus. So that was one. You know, our culture stemmed from just Uber transparency. And you know, what we basically said is everybody working here is an adult. They can hear the good news, they can also know how to process the bad news. And so always my job is filtering the bad news, giving them just the good news. People aren't feeling the reality of a startup. A startup's never hunky-dory all the time. And so you know, we kind of coach people to understand and and, and uh, kind of process the good, the bad, and the ugly, because that's what startup building is all about. Um, you know, the third thing is the customer focus. I've talked about it a fair bit. And um, I'd say the fourth thing was really, you know, I have this belief, which is I have to work myself out of a job. I've always had this belief as I'm hiring. And so when I'm hiring people, that's just not also about what we hire for, but it's like when they're here, they have extreme autonomy. You know, we hold them accountable for the higher level objectives, but I'm not like, I tell people that are coming in, especially leaders and executives, like you're not coming here to do everything I tell you to do. You're coming here to tell me what I, we should do as an organization. And, um, and you know, a lot of startups, uh, CEOs are like, I know what's gonna do to be done. I'm going to tell you what to do. Your job is to go do it. And and I just think that's then there's no diversity of ideas and experiences and thinking in the mix. Um, so I would say those were probably the key traits um, and kind of company values that we focused on a lot. Last one, we would always say is get shit done. Like yeah. stop talking, just get shit done. So, yeah. you know, it was really around velocity and, and willingness to take risk, knowing very well that, 100% of what you do won't always be right, and that's okay, right? We give you safe space to make mistakes and and pivot. Now, now you mentioned always trying to replace yourself when you're recruiting leaders. Um, and you, I've used that you said that to me before too. Um, that that's something that maybe people talk about, but that requires a degree of kind of selflessness and really kind of courage to do. That's probably underrated. I think the most the most important thing is security. Like if you're an in, you, if you're insecure about certain things if you're unwilling to be vulnerable and recognize that you are not as a ceo an expert in every function you just never will be i can't be an expert in product and engineering and sales and marketing and business development i can't so if you can recognize that if you can vocalize that to people and say you know i'm completely comfortable knowing that i'm a great visionary maybe i'm a great product leader I've never done sales before. And so when I hire you, I expect you to come in and run that form for us, 
Yes, share your ideas on how you want to execute there. Sure, I might have ideas. We will disagree some point. We'll come disagree and come in and move forward. Um, and and so yes, I think the number one thing is just being secure as a leader yourself, recognizing your strengths and weaknesses, and then hiring around yourself a team that is better than you. Because if you're not secure, you'd be very worried to hire somebody better than you. Um, for that very reason. And then I, well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Palo Alto because it seems like sometimes when startups are acquired by large companies, the founders can't wait to get out, but it, it kind of appeared you actually stayed there for a little while. You want to tell me about the acquisition? Uh, yeah, I stayed there and a lot of companies I acquired after me, uh, you know, the founders are still there and thriving. So look, the, the number one reason acquisitions fail is the first thing the acquiring company does is great. You're small. I'm big. I tell you how to do things because I paid for you. And okay, you 20 engineers go to our engineering team. You five salespeople go into our sales team and everybody gets lost. The culture gets compromised. And essentially when hundred people go into a company with a hundred thousand people, guess what? Like everybody just disappears and is buried into the organizational bureaucracy. The big thing that Palo Alto Networks did right, and you know, kind of kudos to Nikesh, the CEO who came in because you know, Redlock was the first acquisition he made. And by the way, congratulations to him. He just completed five years as CEO there. It's been incredible to watch his, his journey is that we had a conversation. We said, cloud is different. You can't sell, can't build, can't service, can market cloud products like network security products and we fully recognized it. And we said, we're going to build a separate organization. Basically we called it a speedboat. We said Palo Alto networks is a yacht, a yacht sailing in the middle of the ocean. Cloud is just taking off. You're at the Harbor in the Marina. You got to catch up to the yacht. That's going to take a different speed velocity to get there. So we called it literally a speedboat and we created a Prisma cloud speedboat and we said, few things. One, we will not tear this organization apart. We will keep it together and add more fuel to actually add more salespeople, add more marketing people. So I, as a general manager of that business, had our own dedicated sales team, dedicated marketing team, dedicated customer success team. And we grew that business 100x within the first uh, two years because we had a working product, we had a working sales motion, and now we just expanded that, right? So that was hugely successful. The other thing we said is because we have this machinery that's working now, and now we have the capital to invest in it, and cloud is still in its first innings, let's avoid the sins of the past. And what are those sins of the past in security? That's that eventually customers have to end up buying 100 products because they don't want to compromise on best of breed, yet you don't find best of breed in a single platform. So you buy some network security from somewhere, endpoint security from someone, great. We said we're at an opportunistic place where cloud is early. We have best of breed on CSPM already. Let's go figure out what are the three or four other areas in cloud that are super critical and either build it or let's be honest with ourselves. If, if there's somebody better who's already three years ahead of us, acquired, integrated it. So customers don't have to choose best of breed or integrated. We give them both. And that's where we then made the acquisitions of Twistlock in the container security space, and then things like Bridge Crew in the infrastructure's code space. And today, what you have now from Prisma Cloud is this code to cloud platform 
that has several best of breed capabilities. And by the way, along the way, if there was something we thought was important, like identity and Kim, and we didn't think there was, uh, you know, we thought we could do it better ourselves than acquire after looking at the market, we built it ourselves. Uh, and so it was being completely honest and, and analyzing with a database approach of what do we acquire? What do we build? How do we integrate it into a single suite um, to make customers' lives easier, both from a purchase and licensing perspective, but also from a deployment and operationalization perspective. Very interesting. Yeah, you definitely don't hear that uh, story from a lot of founders after they're acquired by other companies. So that's that, that was very, very fascinating. So before Redlock, you 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 actually started back in cloud security in 2010, I think it was with Cypher Cloud. Uh, tell us yeah. a little about Cypher Cloud. So uh, I was working at salesforce.com uh, for the past four years, and obviously we had a front row seat into how enterprises were thinking about enterprise SaaS, putting customer data in there, thinking about all the compliance and regulatory implications. You know, back then, like data sovereignty was a huge topic because it's like, oh my God, you're trying to tell me I'm going to put my customer data outside of my four walls and trust you to do it? Why should I trust you? And, you know, that's kind of before this term CASB came out, but effectively we said, can we bridge the gap? Can we give customers the best of enterprise SaaS apps they want to use, but give them full control of data that's moving into the cloud? And that was the genesis of Cypher Cloud. It was back in 2010, you know, the, the term CASB was coined in 20, late 2012, if I remember correctly. Uh, but we basically created this idea of you as a customer can control the data movement in the cloud, decide how you want to encrypt tokenized data, monitor what your users are doing. Um, and that was the genesis of CypherCloud. Very different back then. So you're CypherCloud and Redlock, you're, you're at the beginning of brand new categories, like really before they're founded. Um, and then, but now, now with Ender Labs, it's it's a different kind of deal where you, you jumped into a, a existing category with uh, some people in there. Like, what what's what's it like? What's the contrast to do that? Well, let's talk about what's the common thread across all. Uh, the common thread across all three is we typically uh, are building this software and security companies that will address the tectonic shift in technology trends. So first was the move from enterprise apps to enterprise SaaS apps. The second was moving from data center to the cloud. The third company is you now write less software of your own and you borrow more software from strangers on the internet. You know, previously, five years ago, over 60, 70% of the code was written by you in an application. Today, 80, 90% of the code is written by somebody else that you have no contracts or SLAs with. So I'd say the common theme is that, I'd say in Endor's case, it, there is an existing category that has serviced parts of the issues that come with this, but even those category of products have got completely overwhelmed with the just sheer acceleration and adoption that you need to kind of take a fresh look at this problem uh, for today's risks, for the today's level of adoption, scale, advances in AI. Um, but the thing that's different is with CypherCloud and Redlock, there was new budget line items. With Endor, it's an existing budget, right? AppSec teams have some code security scanning tools that they have budget for. 
Look, it, it has its pros and cons. Um, the pros in, in the current situation are in tight economic situations, creating new budget line items for new products is always harder. Yep. Replacement, more optimization, better productivity to you with the same spend is a much better value conversation. So that's a nice pro. The con is if somebody asks something and you know they're like, oh, you, you know, you want to take a lazy approach of, yeah, I know you're better, but I don't want to kind of shake up the boat. Maybe come back, talk to me at the next renewal cycle. That's the downside of these conversations. But we believe strongly that the value proposition of how much engineering productivity boost Endor Labs can give you is such a no-brainer. That's a very tough conversation for somebody to look the other way and say, you know what, I'm just going to stick with what I have. Yeah, a lot of people don't think about that, but the cat, those category names like the Gardner gives essentially our line item and budget and once that hits there and they say spend all the money floods in so you 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 were obviously part of building new categories so you had to wait till that happens and then now that's a different a different scenario to jump in yeah i think those take longer there's more evangelical sales processes you're trying to create budgets and create the urgency and here you have all established markets i mean for example you know i was reading a forester report the other day from last quarter which says Application security is growing nearly as fast as cloud security now, which is great because for many years it was underserved. And the biggest spend area in application security is going to be software composition analysis. It's great for the business we're in and we're, we're starting out now. RAS, we, we think SCA as it was needs to be redefined. So here we're not really necessarily going after new category creation, but a, a redefinition and reorientation. And by the way, every analyst, Gardner Forrester talks about this, where, you know, SCA needs to shift, like there needs to be a different approach to SCA. And so that's great. We are all aligned that we think SCA, the name and acronym might stay, but what it, what it is needs to completely be redefined. So the rise, everyone's becoming a software company, everyone's writing, hiring DevOps people, that's obviously been a huge attack surface. But within that, the reuse of code, as you pointed out, 80, 90%, that's like a big new attack surface or gr rapidly growing one. That sounds like, yeah, it, it yeah. does, it does seem like there's a pattern of startups, like the, a, a new attack surface causes startups to form more so than let's just replace you do the next gen of something that's already there. Yeah. Look, I think, um, I think there's the good and the bad, right? I think with cybersecurity getting so much attention, lots of people want to innovate in the space. The good of it is you get more innovation. The bad of it is you also get a lot of noise because, you know, now you have people from non-cyber backgrounds coming in and think because cyber is a well-spent market, let's go build a company there. I'd say that the typical problem we have as an industry is most startups really are very focused on very small slivers of functionality. And you have to ask the question, is this a company? Is this a feature? Yeah. And eventually I think customers are also getting tired of buying hundreds of security products and they want to see consolidation. So now, you know, the question of the challenge for a startup entrepreneur like myself is don't just define like, yes, you need to start somewhere, but have a very clear vision of the problems you're going to solve long-term and, and kind of how do you drive the path to get there very, very quickly. So customers can do more things with more consolidated tools in a better, more efficient, uh, and more productive way. Well, well great. Thank, thanks for coming on uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, wonderful pieces of wisdom here from you and uh, telling the Red Lock story that I've always been fascinated for. Thanks so much. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, I'll see you back in, uh, what, six years in Innovation Sandbox. <laughs> 
Thanks so much. Great to, great to chat with you, yep. Paul. Thank you for Talk to you later. Hey, make sure you hit like and then follow or subscribe to the Genealogy of Cybersecurity podcast. Why? Because this show lets you gaze into the future. Seriously, though, security is changing fast. The shift towards cloud and application security came more suddenly than anything seen in our industry's history. But it's not going to settle down. Cybersecurity is going to get a lot crazier with generative AI and automation. The genealogy of cybersecurity is where you get first access to the visionaries of building our future, from entrepreneurs and technologists to those CISOs and venture capitalists that actually have their hands on the financial levers of future R&D. Here on the genealogy of cybersecurity, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed.